Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country and around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray, as advertised on the Voice America Variety Channel. And I'm again excited to bring you some information saying that there are many things that are going badly in our world today. We get hit with them frequently and right in the face with our media, etc. Something bad goes wrong in Mozambique and it's like it's next door. But what we don't realize is often enough, there are a lot of good things happening as well. And boy, I can tell you one of the truly good things that's happening now is called the Nature Conservancy. Uh, I'm a libertarian. I believe that private individuals banding together, foundations, etc., can do a far better, more responsible, responsive job, mostly than government can. And a prime example is the Nature Conservancy, where they have just now, and we'll get into this with our guest, Liz Harvey, who's the chief development officer for the Nature Conservancy here in, in my state of California. But uh, we're going to show you some statistics that are just going to knock your socks off. Uh, even if you're barefoot, it'll probably knock your, your sandals off, because what they're doing is wonderful. Uh, to give a little background about Liz, she is a graduate of the Westmont College, and then I understand she went to the Hosp School of Business at the University of California at Berkeley. Boy, that's hard to get in, much less uh, graduate, and is also involved in, in running, hiking, kayaking, and camping, as well as talking with us for an hour here on All Rise. Uh, she's also involved with for 30 years of experience in the San Francisco Bay Area area of philanthropy, and I got my attention, Save Mount Diablo, which has been involved for quite a while, and I was asking her off the air before we started here, you might know my brother-in-law and my sister, Robin and Peter Frazier, who were involved with Mount St. Diablo, and she said, oh, yes, I know Peter and their son, Michael, so we have that connection. All good things with good people. So, Liz, think to simply thank you for being with us. Thank you for what you're doing, and welcome. Thank you very much, Judge. I'm glad to be here. Well, explain a little of the background. Uh, I gave just just a sketch amount of your background, but tell us how you got involved with Nature Conservancy and, and your background so we can know Liz a little bit better. Oh, well, thank you. So I'm a native Californian. Uh, my folks also are uh, were born and raised in uh, California and my dad in Phoenix. So uh, we've spent a lot of time exploring all the wonderful natural wonders of California. And um, my folks were especially interested in hiking and backpacking and camping. So we were able to see so many of our national parks and our state parks here in California and really spent the free time that we had and the vacation that we had outdoors. So I feel really blessed about that. And then, I, uh, let's see, I went to Westmont, as you mentioned, which is down in Santa Barbara. And while I was at Westmont, I spent my uh, third year, my junior year, 
in an internship back in Washington, D.C., with uh, President Reagan's Task Force on Private Sector Initiatives. And it was a real eye-opener for me. I, I really enjoyed it. I was a business major, really wanted to go into the private sector, but I wasn't that motivated by making money. And when I was serving in the internship, it was exploring how the private sector was involved in uh, the the third sector, which is social services and delivering all types of um, public benefit through nonprofits. And so uh, I I was very lucky to be able to work with uh, a segment of that task force, which was looking at how corporations were getting involved in the the, uh, nonprofit community and how they were helping them. And it was just a, a light bulb went off for me about, wow, I can marry my interest in doing something good and something that would benefit the public, but I could do it through the private sector. So that was, that was a real um, uh, kind of a changing moment for me. And it really helped me to decide what I wanted to, where I wanted to spend my time in my career. So uh, I, after I graduated, I worked in a nonprofit in uh, the five points area of Denver in a nonprofit housing cooperative. And then I returned to the Bay Area, and I was lucky to get uh, employed by the Clorox company in their community affairs department, which was staffing their corporate foundation. So for eight years, I was able to work both in uh, in corporate philanthropy as well as in their um, the kind of lobbying efforts and government affairs. So it was a really educational experience for me, and it set me up for my career in the nonprofit community. And so you end up hooking up with the Nature Conservancy. Give us a little background on how that was formed, and uh, tell us what it does. Sure. Well, when I first started, I really, or or I first started supporting the Nature Conservancy, I should say, I, I only knew that they they protected land. And anybody in California understands the threat. Uh, our population explodes. <laughs> and uh, we have this gorgeous, gorgeous uh, natural environment around us that has so many different ecosystems to it. And we know that really that's um, really what draws people to California is the climate and the coast and the mountains and just the variety of experiences you can have outside. And so I, that's what I valued, and I, I appreciated that the Nature Conservancy was helping to protect land because I understood the threat of population growth and uh, how everybody kind of wants a piece of their, their nirvana <laughs> and what a threat that is really to the natural world. So I, uh, I started supporting it with my little contributions, and uh, little did I know that uh, decades later I would be able to work for the Nature Conservancy. So I I was, one of my friends uh, is a a lawyer, and he worked for Morrison and Forrester at the time, and he was doing a lot of pro bono work for the Nature Conservancy, and we have to uh, give accolades to Morrison and Forrester because they've really, over decades, provided so much pro bono legal help for us. Wonderful. And he said, you know what, Liz, I think you should work for the Nature Conservancy because you're just perfect for it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> well, I was working for uh, a higher educational uh, institution at the time, and I was very much enjoying it. And I sort of tucked that thought away 
in the back of my mind. And then uh, probably 10 years later, I was called by a recruiter from the Nature Conservancy, and they said, hey, we've got this position open for the California chapter, and would you like to apply? And I said, no, I don't think so. I just started a new job, and I, I really need to give it a go, and I'm, I'm not ready to make a switch, but um, thank you very much. And so about a year and a half later, I was thinking, you know, I think I am ready to make a change. And so I called that recruiter. She put me in touch with someone, and uh, it turned out there was an opening, and I applied. I got the job, and that was 10 years ago, almost to the date. So I, I feel very lucky. Um, and it, would you like a little bit of background, too, on the Nature Conservancy? Would that be helpful? Yes, yes, indeed, because the title of this segment is Nature Conservancy, Environment Done Right. And, and this is what the Nature Conservancy does. Uh, certainly, I love our national parks. In fact, uh, I've told my wife that before I die, I'd like to visit all of our national parks. I think Yosemite Valley is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. But... So we're not a threat to the national parks, but but Nature Conservancy sets aside you know headlands in in water watershed areas. But I I can't tell it nearly as well as our guest Liz Harvey. So please tell us <laughs> what Nature Conservancy does. Sure. So we're a nonprofit organization, all under one five hundred one c three. We were founded in nineteen fifty one, and the first project, the first place that we ever um, protected was in New York. Uh, so right outside of New York City, really, uh, right near uh, Connecticut, it's called the Miami Scourge. So uh, there was a group of people that were really um, scientists and scientific organization uh, that was known as the Ecological Society of America. It split off into a group called the Ecologist Union, and that group of people uh, really then started to form the Nature Conservancy. So it, it's always had scientific roots. And in 51, they were approached by um, a group of private citizens who uh, really loved the 60-acre forest in New York that was under threat uh, of development. And so uh, basically... There was the ultimate ultimatum was you either buy this piece of land or else it's going to get developed. So this group of people were, said we've got to do something, and so they raised money from um, as a very grassroots campaign, and they were able to bid on the land and uh, purchase it. So it's now called the Miami River Gorge Preserve, and so from there we've gone on to uh, we we really continued the membership organization kind of um, fundraising model, and we have one million members around the world, and we've protected 119 million acres and thousands of miles of river um, river miles. So we've, we're in 72 countries right now. We have about 4,000 employees, and um, in terms of assets, uh, and other measures, we are the largest conservation organization in the world. So I'm very grateful for the people that had the vision and the passion to to protect the Miami Gorge. <laughs> yes, indeed, and and it's gone on for so many other ways, and it's just done right. You don't you don't condemn property. You don't use eminent domain. You negotiate 
Sometimes people will give you a better price. Sometimes they'll trade information, uh, property, etc. But recently, my wife and I were on vacation. Actually, we were on a uh, tour of the Columbia River and the Snake River and went on a side trip on a jet boat tour up the Snake River in Hell's Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been there before or not. It's between Oregon and Washington. And Liz, to my surprise and gratification, when we stopped for lunch, we stopped at a place called Garden Creek, which is a nature conservancy facility. And actually, I understand that you can stay there to some degree, but it's being kept in its native condition. People can spend the nights there. Uh, I wasn't aware that you did such things, but it's just It's cultivating the native animal population. They had a couple of wolves and they had a couple of, you know, elk and that sort of thing. But it's just refreshing. How many such areas like Garden Creek are there that are protected by Nature Conservancy, if you know? You know, I'm sorry. I don't have the number of uh, actual deals that we've done. I just know that we've, uh, we've protected 119 million acres. We, we have 50 chapters, so there's a chapter in every state, and then, of course, we're in different countries, and in the, in the states, because we can own property, uh, it's primarily been the way that we've grown as a land trust. We have purchased individual preserves and either kept them in our own ownership or we've conveyed them to either public ownership or to other nonprofits. So uh, many of those preserves, you can visit. Uh, We do have lists on the website. Every state has their own uh, segment of our website, so you can visit. Any interested person can visit the website and look for places that they can either as a, usually as a a day use kind of visitor, sometimes as an overnight visitor, you can uh, experience the beauty and the, the story of each preserve. There, there are so many different, um, as, as varied as the United States is, there's that many uh, stories about protection and uh, what, the, what the conservation target is at each place. Do you allow public access onto your properties that you, you're talking about in Connecticut, but, but can people go there and camp or hike and that sort of thing? It's, it's, um, the, the answer is yes. Um, and it's, it depends on where it is and the amount of staffing is available. And it also depends on what the conservation priority is at that place. Uh, there's many places in California that people can visit. And as you experienced in Oregon and Washington, there are also many preserves there. Uh, each state chapter has, has really is a reflection of the priorities of that state. So in our case here in California, because uh, purchasing land is so expensive, we've really uh, tried to convey as much property as we can to our um, partners who maintain the you know, fee ownership and the responsibility for management in the long run. Uh, we have properties that the UC reserve system is in um responsibility for now, some that are have been conveyed over to watershed councils, uh, some that are in state parks, some in national parks, national forests, etc. So they're all different, but I would encourage people to visit the website. We There are preserves in the Mojave Desert, the Carrizo Plain, 
uh, along Pismo Beach in the Guadalupe Nipomo Dunes. Um, up north, again, where we started along the coast in the Redwood Forest. So quite quite a variety of places that people can go. You uh, mentioned that, that what you do, it's critically important for people to understand that once the Nature Conservancy gets control of some property, it will be in its natural state in perpetuity. I think that that is the the promise, whether it's governed by the the National Park Service or State Park Service or their various other partnerships, uh, it will be in its natural state, which of course enhances the wildlife, it enhances us all, so that when I see these places, I know that my children, my grandchildren, their children will be able to see it the same natural way as I have, which is enormously gratifying. I'm correct on that, am I not, Liz Harvey? Absolutely. We we and frequently what happens is that we'll purchase a place. It'll need to be restored in some way. Uh, many times, not all the time. So we'll complete the research and the restoration goals that we have for it, and then uh, again, it's not immediate. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years later. Uh, we, we may look for a partner that wants to hold it in perpetuity. And uh, frequently, if allowed, we'll have a conservation easement on the property, so we still maintain a relationship with the property and a monitoring responsibility. And then the fee ownership will um, be held by our conservation partner. And we, we, we absolutely look for tangible lasting results and the durability of the conservation outcome that we were seeking. So when the Nature Conservancy uses the term restored, I assume that you mean it's restored kind of to its natural state. You get rid of invasive plants that are not natural to the area and bred and the rest. Is that what the term means? It, it does. It, restoration has, um, it, it, in Generally speaking, that's what it means, right? We're restoring it to its natural state, to its native state, and uh, that often means, uh, in our case, because we do things uh, in at scale, it means really uh, getting sometimes some heavy equipment in, uh, seeking some uh, large grants to uh, finance these projects, uh, the removal of Arundo and all kinds of... Um, plants with uh, sometimes involving uh, what we think of as citizen scientists, but often uh, employing professional firms that are, um, their specialty is restoration. And so we're seeking to uh, return rivers to their natural state, return coho nurseries and estuaries along the coast to their natural state, uh, forests. Uh, sometimes it means thinning them. Sometimes it means prescribed burns. Um, sometimes it means very um, some very uh, targeted logging. Uh, but we're trying to return things to a healthy, sustainable state so that there, it, nature is can can really start to function in the way that it did before um, human beings entered the equation. <laughs> As yeah, far indeed. as we know, right? <laughs> well, and this yeah. is not just kind of a hit and miss operation. As I understand it, the Nature Conservancy has access to about 400 scientists, so they they know what they're talking about, I'm assuming. We absolutely do. We have maintained our science-based uh, focus, uh, and we have, we do, we have over uh, 
So I think we have about 600 scientists who are employed around the world. And uh, they always partner with our conservation staff. Uh, so we're, we're, we have, uh, for each conservation program, and, and especially here in California, we have uh, people from the technology world, from the scientific world, the pure scientific world, conservation science, and then from the economic world that are looking at projects to see how can we finance this, how can we uh, do, know, create a conservation map essentially to tell us what's the right way to approach this uh, a problem, and then also how can we use and employ technology to get there faster? So we're really trying to use all resources available to us to pursue our conservation goals. Indeed so. And the theme of the Nature Conservancy, as I understand it, is people and nature thrive together. Uh, and and I have found that. By the way, let me also throw in a, another just puffing for my legal profession, because you mentioned Morriston and Forster has donated numbers of, of hours to volunteer service. I think the law profession should take a bow that that lots of pro bono work is done by volunteers in the law profession, uh, Morrison and Forster as well as others. Um, so if somebody wanted to to learn more information about the Nature Conservancy, wanted to help, uh, what is their website again, Liz Harvey, so that uh, they can get more information and also lend their support to this really noble process? Well, thank you. Uh, our, we have nature.org. It's very easy to remember <laughs> is our website. And from uh, the homepage, you can navigate to many, many places. Again, uh, both our country, our, uh, country programs as well as our uh, state-based chapters. And then if you're specifically interested in California, you can go to uh, conserveca.org, and that, that will take you to uh, learn about specifically California programs. We're blessed. We're the largest chapter. We have uh, the most populous state, and uh, we're able to, we, we have such a diverse natural world here in California that we have a very uh, rigorous program, and I, I would welcome any listener to look to see what we're doing here in California. And I heard you say that you have a fair amount of corporate support, which will surprise a lot of people that the the watchword seems to be, oh, those evil corporations, they just want to make money, they don't help. But that's not what you have found, is it? That people involved with corporations also have a vested interest in clean air, clean water, and preserving our, our nature. Uh, have you found a lot of corporate support for the Nature Conservancy? We do. We're, we're, um, we especially work with those corporations that either have a, carb, a fairly large carbon footprint or really rely on natural resources in the course of their business. So we work with mining companies. Uh, we work with uh, gas and oil companies. We work with agricultural companies. Um, and, and most recently, just a couple days ago, Amazon and the Nature Conservancy uh, announced a partnership to help Amazon identify uh, where they can invest $100 million to uh, really, to really approach uh, the climate change and climate warming problem, and to offset their carbon footprint. So we're very excited by that new partnership. 
That's just outstanding. And people need to know these things, too, because it's just really consoling to know that these things are happening. In about the minute or two remaining before we take a break, uh, I was fortunate enough to be invited to go on a hike in Dangermont, which is on the California coast, central California, just north of Santa Barbara. But uh, it was just a wonderful thing. In the couple of minutes remaining to us before the break, Liz Harvey, Chief Development Officer of California Nature Conservancy, what is the Dangermont? project and and how is it going well uh we're thank you for bringing that up we are so grateful to jack and laura dangerman for giving us a very large gift um, to purchase this twenty-four thousand acre ranch which was formerly known as the bixby ranch it's right at uh, the northern part of santa barbara county uh, and it's right where point conception is located uh south of vandenberg air force base so we're, we're, it's an incredible place of wildness for California. There, it, it's the, uh, a long time holding of the Bixby family, which uh, in Southern California w- was a very large landowner. And it's generally speaking very wild right now, although they have run cattle on it and it's still a working cattle ranch. And we're excited to, with the partnership of the Dangermans, and Esri, which is the company that they formed, uh, the Vandenberg Air Force Base and UCSB, which is a, a um, very world-renowned uh, research institution, we're going to form a, uh, a research, a scientific research institute there, focused on conservation and creating a, a digital twin for the preserve, pursuing environmental education for local students. And uh, and whatever lies beyond that, we're we're two years into this now, and, and it's such an exciting, wonderful preserve. It's just like we say that this is going right. This is something that is simply working in all of its dimensions. In fact, as I understand it, the Nature Conservancy, after they received this gift of the 24,000 acres, which will be held in perpetuity, but they donated one of the beaches there to the public so the public can come in and, and, uh, and enjoy one of our beaches. It's just another symptom of how well the Nature Conservancy is doing for us all. We're going to come back, and I think I'm going to blow your mind a little bit if you're listening out there, not only on the land, but in the oceans that the Nature Conservancy is really making enormous progress for us all. We're going to talk about those issues after we come back after these words. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. 
Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, this is Judge Jim Gray back again on All Rise because we are all rising together with the work that the Nature Conservancy is doing. But like I said before the break, yes, it's on the land where they're getting watersheds protected and various other natural habitats protected for us all or Dangermond, which is on the coast of California. Just, I mean, my goodness, 24,000 acres are going to be, they're continuing to be a cattle ranch to some degree, which is fine. But also uh, I noticed that they had a, a, uh, they saw a bobcat there on the property recently. So it's just wonderful, gratifying to see these things are happening. But hold on to your hair, as my grandfather used to say, because they're also involved in in uh, California as well as now around the nation, as I understand it, uh, about protecting fisheries. About They have purchased, as they said, fishing permits. They collaborated then with fishermen because they have that vested interest to find ways to protect the habit, improve fishing practices. And so tell us a little bit about this. How long has it been going on that Nature Conservancy has been involved in the, the fishing industry and habitat, Liz Harvey, because this is exciting stuff. Yes, well, thank you. Yeah, as, as I mentioned uh, in the beginning, we started as a land trust and really protecting these super special places of biodiversity on the land. But uh, it's hard to just stop there when really there's environmental threats all around us. And so uh, in California, in the central coast around Morro Bay, we, uh, we unfortunately had one of our fisheries collapse due to overfishing, and that was the central coast ground fisher, fishing fishery. And uh, it was a, it re- really a hardship for local fishers, as, and many of these um, anglers had been in the business for um, d- generations, and it also meant that the, the fish were not available to consume, uh, you know, Dover sole, et cetera. So we decided to buy into the problem, and uh, with the help of several generous foundations and individuals, we bought up the permits in that fishery. And we decided to then uh, lease them out again to those who wanted to continue to fish, but under certain conditions. And those were ones that we determined, uh, again, based on our science, that were sustainable. And so we changed the uh, method of fishing. We used technology to determine where the places were safe to fish and where we should stay away from. And uh, after about 15 years of, of just continued work there in partnership with fishermen, we changed the uh, 
the trajectory of that fishery. And now it's completely back to health. And the permits and the boats that we had purchased, we've now sold back to fishermen. And, uh, and we're very gratified that it's been a success. And so the, the approach that we use there, we have now um, amplified in other areas. And, I, and most recently, we are in the Indo-Pacific tuna fishery. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you are aware that there are many uh, types of tuna that are just being overfished. And it's a threat to the world, really, to our our um, our food system. And so, we're we're trying to apply that same approach there in partnership with many governments, uh, many countries, and uh, and fishermen that are concerned about their livelihood. So, uh, it's been a great story. Yes, indeed, but. Coming back then to the fisheries here in California, you used the word sustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would you would resell or release out these permits, but what do you mean by sustainable? Because we've been we've been taking more fish out than have been replenishing, so that's why we we start losing the uh, the supply of fish. But but what are the get a little more specifics as to what you mean by sustainable and how is that going to be perpetuated now that the fishing industry has their permits back? So it, it's about determining, and I get, I'm not a scientist, <laughs> just want to say that, but it's about determining basically what you're saying, that the, what's the amount of food supply, how many fish can we harvest, in what ways, of course, looking also at the issue of bycatch. So how can we minimize bycatch, maximize the number of fish that we want to take, but, but determining a quota that's actually going to be able to be replenished. And based on the the amount of habitat that's available and the health of the habitat. So as long as we have healthy habitat, we're able to take the, uh, the appropriate number of fish that can be then replenished, we're doing it in a sustainable manner. And, uh, and actually the interesting part of this story now that uh, the fishermen are dealing with is how can they get their fish processed in a way that is going to return an amount of a livable wage to them really so that they can continue to pursue this living here in California, which as we know is a fairly expensive place to live. So, so that's really the new, their new uh, frontier, if you will, is, is being able to process and sell food to local markets in a manner that's going to return a livable wage to them. So, in effect, we have a partnership between nature on the one hand and the people that that rely upon nature for their existence in, in fishing. As a part of that, do you get involved with, like, reseeding kelp beds or anything like that as well? Or, or is it just trying to oversee a sustainable quota? Well, as a matter of fact, we do have a new uh, emerging project along the North Coast, uh, the kelp. I, I don't, it's probably not known by a lot of people, but the kelp forests along the North Coast are largely gone. It's very sad. Uh, those of us that live here in the Bay Area and know the Monterey Bay know what a healthy forest, uh, kelp forest looks like. And uh, we see the sea otters and they're delightful 
they're very charming creatures from the human standpoint. <laughs> and um, we we don't have that up in the North Coast, and it's a very sad situation. Uh, really, it's, uh, it's a complex story of warming waters and uh, this, uh a large, there's a large sea star that has um, was decimated really by the warming waters. It really was the my primary predator of the sea urchin, and now uh, sea urchins don't have that predator, so they they feed on kelp. So they've been uh, they've really decimated the kelp forest. So yes, we do have a project that we're focused on, which will be a priority definitely over the next five years, which is to restore healthy kelp forests along the north coast. Bless you. I'm I'm looking at a, a cover story on the San Francisco Chronicle that's talking about the Nature Conservancy's work in the fisheries, and I'll just give you the title because it was really kind of kind of eye-opening. 13 years ago, the Nature Conservancy desperately wanted to protect ground fish. Now it wants you to eat them. So it just shows, you know, the little irony in there, but but it shows the success of this program. Speaking of success, uh, I was I was in the Navy in Guam and, and did some scuba diving and so got to familiarize myself with coral reefs and the rest. But coral reefs are on the decline worldwide. What is Nature Conservancy doing on that issue, Liz Harvey? Well, we are very active in the Caribbean uh, and Micronesia, the Coral Triangle, uh, and in other parts of the world, certainly along the coast of Africa, too, in a number of ways. So we, we employ scientists that specialize in coral. Uh, we're, we're propagating coral. We're, we're doing research to figure out which types of coral really are the most resilient and then growing coral to then replace coral that has been decimated. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons that coral is not thriving in a lot of places, both warming oceans pollution, uh, silt, uh, and uh, other types of threats to it. So we're, we're around the world. We, we also, decades ago, started what is called the Coral Reef Alliance, which is uh, just organizations throughout the world that are concerned about coral. Uh, coral is another one of those bedrock communities of habitat similar to kelp that so many creatures rely on. And if you don't have the underlying um, habitat that's intact, all those creatures that rely on it, therefore, are not going to thrive. And the people that rely on that resource are not going to thrive. So we, we see this as a, a really important area of, of research and applied science. And I think this is one of the things about the Nature Conservancy that I love. We work with universities, we work with experts around the world, but then we apply the science in place and we, we're actually restoring coral reefs and oyster beds and forests, etc. So I, I, and again, this is where philanthropy and individuals and corporations and foundations come into play because it takes money to do these things and so we can't do them alone and we very much appreciate the support that we received and the belief that people have in us to continue to fund this work. 
Well, uh, let me just say as a fan, because uh, I have don't made some donations, modest sometimes that they are. There's also in my will a bequest to the Nature Conservancy, which makes me proud. And I recommend it to others that, that these folks aren't just dabbling. They're not just do-gooders. They see what works. If it doesn't, they do something different. But they are involved like we would want any group to be involved in saving our planet, restoring our planet, making it better for all of us. And that's corporations, lawyers, everyone else, fisher people. Uh, I can't say fishermen anymore, but but these are, these are things that you really will find a great deal of gratification by supporting this wonderful organization. As I read on your your website, you're involved with land, water, oceans, and innovation. And just to read this, as to land, your dictate is to protect and restore a resilient network of lands across California in this case. Water, to ensure the healthy water supplies for nature and for people. Oceans, to transform how fisheries are managed and how marine habitats are protected and restored, like Liz Harvey's been telling us. And innovation, to deliver science and technology breakthroughs through conservation. So these are just the things that this wonderful organization is doing. People and nature thrive together indeed. So so just in just accept our thanks with regard to that. What do you see the future as uh, for conservancy in general, uh, countrywide, California, as well as the Nature Conservancy? Are you are you thriving, Liz Harvey, their chief development officer? Well, uh, we thrive with the economy to a degree. <laughs> so, one, I am grateful that we've had uh, an economy that has been growing, uh, which allows our our funders to to give us more money. Uh, And I'm super grateful for really those people that have grown up uh, enjoying nature, wanting it to be preserved, and wanting it to be thriving for the next gen and the generation after that. We we rely on bequests, as you mentioned. Uh, About 70% of our funding comes from private sources which would include um, both bequests as well as current gifts uh, from individuals, corporations, and foundations. And then the rest of the funding comes from government grants. Um, uh, we have some lease income. We have some endowment income. It's, it's quite a blended mix of, of sources. And are we thriving? Well, uh, the organization is growing. We, we have a, believe it or not, a $7 billion campaign worldwide that we're just concluding this year, and we are on target to reach those goals. Uh, again, incredible amount of gratitude for that. And uh, here in California, we, we've already reached our uh, part of that goal, which was uh, $550 million. So we reached that a year early, and um, everything that we're realizing this year is above and beyond that. And we put it right back into conservation. So we, we invest it back in our, in our organization and in acquisitions and in our conservation research, et cetera. So, uh, yes, we are, we are doing very well as an organization. Having and said that, uh, we have some amazing threats out there. So our work is never done. Our work is never done. And, um, and we have many successes that we can point to. But we also have amazing uh, challenges in this next decade. And so uh, we never stop. And I think we never feel like we're finished. (laughs) 
Well, you, you never will be, and you're, you're just doing God's work for us all. And, and just a, a robust thank you for you. You found your calling. In fact, uh, I've said on this show numbers of times, probably the most important thing in life is gratification. You know, it's not love. It's not power. It's not prestige, fame. It's gratification, knowing that the world is a somewhat better place because you visited us here for a while. And the Nature Conservancy and its chief development officer for California, Liz Harvey, you have to be receiving a great amount of gratification for your work. So on behalf of us all, thank you. Liz, I refer to, and numbers of people refer to, the lungs of the world is the Amazon rainforest. And right now, it's, it's still on fire, as I understand it. Uh, I understand that Nature Conservancy is down there, uh, probably not with a shovel and, and a hose, but, but uh, what is the Nature Conservancy doing to protect the Amazonian region? Yes, it's a critical place for uh, biodiversity as well as for carbon sequestration. So uh, we have uh, amazing programs in South America and specifically in Brazil, uh, which is a huge country (laughs) and has a a really large footprint of the Amazon forest. So uh, one of the things that we have piloted and has really been successful in South America and and now in other parts of the world is what we call water funds. And those are uh, a fee or a a system of payment in a city to protect the watershed that feeds clean water into it, clean, reliable sources of water. So uh, we do that in Rio de Janeiro and in other, many other large cities in South America. So that does fund work in the watershed in order to protect and restore the forests, as well as helping farmers to create uh, really landscape-scale plans for their watersheds. Uh, sometimes it means helping them figure out different ways to farm. Uh, and sometimes it means uh, uh, helping them find other places to farm and and finding alternatives to uh, their livelihood so that they can um, plant sustainable forests of, of things like cocoa trees and palm trees and hardwoods that are going to have commercial values so that they can sustain their livelihood without uh, really decimating and burning down more parts of the forest. Uh, I I believe just um, in what I know about the terrible forests that are going down there, or or fires, I'm sorry, um, that many of them are started by people that just want to clear a portion of the forest, and it it gets out of control, and, and, and just it's unstoppable. And of course, we've experience those types of fires here in California that start in, in a very small place and grow and, and then decimate areas. Uh, and so we're, we're very much interested in helping our partners, uh, whether they're indigenous peoples or governments uh, and other nonprofits that are local to Brazil and other countries in South America so that they can stop the forest fires and, 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 still maintain a, a, a livelihood. Well, as I understand it, the Native Americans, before the arrival of uh, us uh, Westerners, were, con- were conducting controlled burns in the forests. Uh, and Nature Conservancy, you've mentioned the word a couple of times, ecological thinning and controlled burns. Uh, 
with your scientists, I assume that this is really the right way to go because if we control and keep fires away from these native places, then the underbrush will build up so much that when a fire starts, then it just has so much fuel that it almost cannot be stopped. So is, is that basically correct as to the Nature Conservancy's position to promote thinning of forests as well as controlled burns? Sure, and definitely in areas where fire is a natural cleanser. So not not every system is fire adapted, but certainly in the Mediterranean systems, uh, especially here in California, it, it's a natural way to thin a forest. And uh, of course, we as we as we start to populate the forest, and of course, we love our trees and we love to live in the mountains, etc we've really tried to suppress so many forest fires and, and yes, we've, we've created a situation now over about 150 years where there's still a lot of undergrowth and uh, density where it shouldn't be. So part of our solution, uh, especially around the world, really uh, to help people maintain the forests that are naturally there is to help them figure out a living that they can, uh, will be, um, adequate to them uh, so that they can harvest trees in order to maintain a healthy forest, but also to uh, to maintain their lifestyle. And, and in some ways, that means figuring out ways that we can use trees. It's sort of like our the, your example you were mentioning from the Chronicle article about um, now we want people to eat fish. Well, we want people to use wood. So uh, <laughs> for a number of reasons, but in part it's because so that there's a market for them so that people can make a living off of harvesting them. What we don't want is for people to over harvest. And so figuring out that balance is key. And that's what's really based in science. But I think here well, in California, especially over the last couple of years, we, we've had some We've been making history with these huge fires, and we we don't want to make history anymore with them. So, um, thankfully, the public is aware now, and um, we have uh, both our last governor and our current governor are making available funds and um, to, so that we can use some prescribed burns and other mechanical ways of thinning our forests. And and we, that's definitely a priority for us this next year and and for the next several years is to work with especially our public entities that are in charge of the forest to help them figure out ways that they can clean out the forest in, in a way that's actually economical for them because it, it's a very expensive proposition. And of course we don't want to create a hazard with any kind of prescribed burn. We, the interesting thing is we really don't have a lot of, uh, we don't have enough people that know how to do prescribed burns. We don't have that kind of workforce because we've been putting out forest fires for so long. Um, so we're really good at putting out forest fires. <laughs> and we really need to train up uh, a workforce that knows how to do prescribed burns and get funding so they can do that. Here, here. Indeed so. Well, it again just shows in your recitation here, Liz, that uh, people and nature can thrive together. And they, in fact, are uh, we have very little time left, but there's one other project that the Nature Conservancy has been involved with called bird returns, all one word, bird returns, and dealing with migratory birds. Uh, what quickly is that program? How is it doing? And, and what is it? 
Sure. Well, uh, as you know, it's expensive. Real estate is expensive here in California. And, I've noticed that. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, and, and our our birds, our wonderful Pacific Flyway that goes through really the Central Valley of California, uh, we've altered it. Uh, 95% of the land that birds used to use as, as habitat so they could rest on their migration, it's gone. And there's the, the wetlands that California historically had in the Central Valley are gone. So... In order to help this, these, this population of birds that remains uh, to have a successful migration, we needed to figure out a way to really amplify habitat. So uh, we created a, a it's a, a reverse auction program with especially rice growers, but some other types of agriculture, so that they would flood their fields at the critical times when birds needed it. And they made money, and we were able to basically lease in a in a very inexpensive way habitat for birds so that they could have a place to rest on their migration pattern here in the Central mm. Valley. Mm. What what kind of birds are you talking about there? Oh gosh, all kinds. Of course, the sandhill crane is the one that's the most mm. unusual. So um, we we do tend to focus on them, but but so many different types of ducks. And uh, and just uh, other types of birds that fly through uh, that that really are waterfowl that really need that the kind of that uh, very very shallow uh, water fields throughout California in order to rest and then uh, eat and then get on their way. <laughs> I just hope that our listeners to all rise are are. Feasting on what we are hearing as about the activities, the projects, successful conclusions for the Nature Conservancy. This is just one of the greatest organizations. If you're interested in the environment, and all of us are, let's support the Nature Conservancy that's doing it right. So again, the nature of this this uh, discussion is Nature Conservancy, environment done right. Boy, it certainly is. Once more, their website is nature.org. Not too hard to remember. Nature.org. Give them some support. Learn more about this. You will you will really appreciate what this great group is doing since what 1951, I believe, well ahead of its time. So thanks to our wonderful guest Liz Harvey for being with us, sharing these thoughts. Uh, I ex- expect that the future for all of us is going to be brighter because the Nature Conservancy is out there helping us do the right thing. And it's working well with with fish, with trees, with coral reefs, with animals, and with people. Because if you do do some good things for a while and then you retreat and the the people come back in and exploit it, you're not going to have any permanent success. That You need to have the program get along without you, as we've learned. That's what Nature Conservancy is doing with its scientists, with its good people, dedicated volunteers, and paid staff like Liz Harvey. So, Ms. Harvey, thanks again for sharing this time with us. Bless you. Thanks for what you're doing. And uh, by the way, give my regards to Ashley, who's going to get married to right away. So, so she's the one that put me in touch with you. So, thank you, Liz. Any final thought? Well, I just thank you, Judge for your, your current gifts and for your uh, remembering us in your estate. It's been a pleasure. We love our state and we love our, our, our global, uh, all the natural wonders of our globe. So I, I just appreciate your plug for us and uh, thank you very much for having me. 
Happy to help. Boy, I tell you, I deal in some controversy. Not today, sport fans. Uh, the Nature Conservancy does it right from everyone's standpoint. So there you have it. In lots of ways, of course, life is complicated, and we know that. But if you employ these libertarian values like the Nature Conservancy is, responsibility, science, discussion, and and doing the right thing for the right reason in perpetuity, I tell you, things can really, good things can happen. And they are. So that's what we talk about here in All Rise. Tune in next week, or you can go to voiceamerica.com, click on the Variety Channel, find me on the All Rise program, 7 o'clock in the morning on Fridays, 10 o'clock Eastern Time, and you can call up on demand this, this conversation with Liz Harvey of the Nature Conservancy or any of our past ones. So we're in here. We should be able to discuss anything openly, honestly, fairly. This isn't controversial, but even if it were, we should be able to discuss it on All Rise. That's what I think. I hope you agree. So thank you for being with us. And this is Judge Jim Gray saying, life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us stand tall.